We now continue to work our way through Mark's gospel, and we are in chapter 3, verses 7 through 35, a rather lengthy text that I'm taking this morning. It will not be characteristic of our look at Mark's gospel, but I am this morning. Chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, beginning with verse 7. But first, let's go before the Lord our God in prayer. O Lord our God, with reverence and awe, we come into the presence of God in that special way that is ordained for us through the blood-stained path into the very courtroom in and through our great high priest, Jesus Christ, asking for the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon this service of worship, and especially the reading and the proclamation of the Word of God. Help us never to take for granted that we have the Bible that has come to us through divine inspiration and through the means of the martyrs who have died and shed blood that we might have it in our laps to read. May we never take it for granted as we consider that so many around the world have no Bible or others hide with their Bibles for fear that their Bibles may be taken from them. Help us to value the book of books. Help us to value and to understand, appreciate, and to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ as revealed to us in the Bible. And we ask that the people of God here will once and afresh delight in that authority and that those who are under the authority of Christ but who have not yet in the heart submitted to the authority of Christ may be brought out of darkness into light as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed on this Sabbath morning. Hear us, Heavenly Father, as we with humility and reverence and awe ask once again, though we do not deserve it, that in Christ, who is all of our merit, we, the people of God, will be blessed in hearing the word in faith. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's word and stand. We are in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, beginning at verse 7. This is the word of God. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from round Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and 
John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed of Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God. Authority is the great issue of our day. By what standard is, or at least should be, the question that prevails in our thoughts? Do we order our thoughts and our actions based on religious criteria, on scientism, other criteria of human autonomy, or do we believe that God has spoken in His Son and authoritatively in the Bible, and this is the only authoritative rule of faith and of practice? The Christian position, and that of the Reformed faith in particular, is that the Bible is our final authority. We hold this for good reasons, based on the self-attesting authority of the Bible, based on the internal evidences of the inspiration of the Bible, but finally because the Holy Spirit has witnessed to our spirits that this is the Word of God. Nothing is more needed today than to herald forth to the world and, of course, to the church the authoritative Word of God. When Jesus, God in the flesh, came, the Bible had not yet been concluded, of course, but men were confronted by the authority of God's Word by its author, Jesus Christ, in His preaching, in His teaching, in His miracles and ministry. Well, did not the Pharisees hold to an authoritative Old Testament? Yes, they did. But they had allowed the Bible to be thus far encrusted 
with falsities and unbiblical viewpoints and unbiblical traditions that turned that authority on its head. So now we come to this section in Mark, verses 7 through 35, and you might have asked yourselves, why is the pastor taking such a large swath this morning? Well, it's because it holds together by a theme, and that theme I want us to see. The theme here is the authority of Christ. Yes, a theme we find throughout Mark, but I think in a very remarkable way found here. When we today read and proclaim the Word of God, we are no less confronted by the authority of Christ than were the scribes when they were confronted with the authority of Jesus Christ. And I want us to see that the authoritative Christ is the unavoidable Christ. And what we may lose in detail, we will gain by perspective on the whole as we make our way through the passage. First then, we see that Jesus authoritatively establishes his kingdom. And we see that in verses 7 through 12. Just as we have seen already in Mark's gospel, Jesus is healing and he is casting out demons. And this is evidence that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. The kingdom, that is the inbreaking of God's saving rule, is manifest in Jesus Christ and his ministry. And we read in verse 11 of the demons crying out. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. They cry out. They know who Jesus is. They know that he is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who has become flesh and who has come to establish his saving rule. And they cry out in desperation because they understand that the arrival of the kingdom means the beginning of the end of the kingdom of darkness. The coming of Jesus spells the end of Satan's kingdom. This is divine authority indeed, that Jesus Christ can rebuke the demons who cry out in desperation before him. So why did Jesus silence the demons? Well, there's concern about the wrong political view of messiahship that garners a lot of people who would follow because of what they think he will do for them and how he might, he might uh, bring them out of the bondage of Rome. And then, of course, there is the impropriety of the unique sonship of Jesus Christ being proclaimed by these filthy, ungodly demons. But probably the main reason is that his sonship can only rightly be understood. As his ministry is brought to conclusion, he goes to the cross and he is raised from the dead. The demons then were commanded at that point in his ministry and at that point in redemptive history to be silent. But Jesus lives. He went to the cross. He rose from the dead and we, in contradistinction to the demons and others that he commanded to be silent, are commanded to speak. We are commanded to be bold, honest witnesses before him of the authority of Christ to the world. And so for us who live after the events that we read in Mark's gospel, it means the acknowledgement of the risen Lord, the spirits tearing down the micro-kingdoms that we are inclined to set up in place of the kingdom of God. 
Establishing the kingdom of his saving rule is inseparably bound up also with Christ's establishment of his church in its new covenant form. And so as we move in the text, we see secondly, Jesus authoritatively calls into existence a new people of God. Now, though this takes place in verses 13 through 19, I want you to notice especially verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Jesus, therefore, up on this mountain, as if it were the elders who were being brought up uh, at, the, at the scene at Sinai, perhaps, He's up on this mountain, and he brings these 12 to him, and he defines them as apostles. Now, why the 12? Well, the 12 correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus builds a new Israel out of the old. Now, again, that's authority, isn't it? That's divine authority that he can say, we are starting afresh. Out of all that has been revealed in redemptive history, out of the covenant unity, we are now starting in this fresh new way, in this new covenant ministry, and I'm establishing my church and its foundation. That's authority. This new Israel includes all sorts of people as the variation among the apostles themselves show. It's a new beginning. What happens here is the appointing of the apostles, and this develops over time. What we have here is the kernel that develops into the full stalk of corn, the apostolate. So after the cross, resurrection, and ascension, this deeper role of the twelve is revealed to us in the Word of God. This is the beginning of it, however. And therefore, the authoritative new beginning reaches down to us. Because, you see, it will grow, it will develop. We come to the New Testament and find that it is the foundation of the church. And so, in two ways at least, what we find here when he calls these twelve and appoints them to be his messengers, his apostles, in a very special sense, it comes down to us, reaches us, teaches us in two ways. First, mission. We find here to his apostles and through them to us, our Lord gives a new commission. So that in verses 14 and 15, he appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. In other words, they're the ones who are now going out and they represent the Lord Jesus Christ in the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, they're sharing in the mission of Jesus. All the way back in the beginning of this gospel, in verse 14 of the first chapter, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And now Jesus Christ called to this preaching ministry, establishing the kingdom, calls these 12 to go out and do the same 
and the apostles were called to follow their Lord in the proclamation of the kingdom, and we now are also called to join in that same proclamation of the kingdom in the world. Not that everyone is called to an official ordained ministry of the word, that's not the point, but the church of Jesus Christ is called to bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, just as these apostles were. So one of the two ways that the authoritative new beginning reaches down to us is the call to proclaim the kingdom of God that has come through Christ alone. But there's another way that this text reaches down to us, and it is that expression, apostolicity. So there's mission, and there is apostolicity. One of the attributes of the church, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, four attributes of the church, one of the attributes of the church is apostolicity. And that means, in essence, commitment to the truth that the apostles preached, to the same word that they proclaimed, the same gospel message that the apostles preached. And we are to be committed to the same gospel as the first apostles preached, to the same truth commitments that they brought in the founding of the church. So a church is a faithful church. It is truly apostolic when it worships the Lord, when it bows to the authority of Jesus Christ in his written word, when it recognizes that people today are still under Satan's thraldom and holds fast to and proclaims the message that frees sinners from that thraldom, which is Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord, who alone establishes his kingdom in the hearts of lost sinners. Now, there are no apostles today, not in that special sense, technical sense of the word. The book of Ephesians tells us that the church is established upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So we are established on apostolic foundation. Now, when, when you build a building, you lay a foundation. You don't continue the foundation all the way up to the roof, do you? No, you build the superstructure on the foundation. What the Lord Jesus is doing in this passage in calling these 12 to himself is to establish this new covenant community, his church. And these are the foundational leaders of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Foundations, again, do not continue on up to the roof. Buildings are erected on the foundation, and we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, according to the book of Ephesians. So how does this work out today in the ministry of the church, that we are an apostolic church, that these 12 called by Jesus then, that this still has implication for us through the apostolicity of the church now? Well, for example, after the Spirit is poured out in the day of Pentecost and the church becomes missionary church, then we find the church gathered in worship and learning. And we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves, that is the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So there they were, gathered together, and they devoted themselves to the 
apostolicity of the church, the apostolic teaching, the apostles' teaching to the Word of God, and of course, imply the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That's what it means to be an apostolic church. Apostolicity means then that we are committed to an external standard, a standard outside of us, to this preaching of these apostles, the revelation that was given through them, to the completed word of God that they upheld and how God used them to bring that completed word to its final canonical form. We are founded upon the doctrine of the apostles and the prophets, and here it is in kernel and develops into full form over time. Now, what I've said to you is extremely important, probably more important than perhaps you're liable to think, that when we speak of the apostolicity of the church, we speak of a commitment to an external standard. And I would say that it's more important that we realize this now than perhaps ever in the history of the church, that we are founded upon the doctrine of the apostles and prophets. Adolphe Monod, French Reformed minister of the word, dying too young, dying on his deathbed, gathered around him a number of believers every Lord's Day, and from his deathbed he preached. Those little sermons were collected in a book called Adolf Minot's Farewell. And one of the things that you'll note as this man of God preaches to those who are gathered around his deathbed is that he preaches often about the Word of God, the authority of the Word, the importance of submission to that authority. Think of it. He's about to die. What does he want to leave to the church? He leaves this emphasis upon the authoritative Word of God, read by believers, believed, preached. And one of the things that he said, and I hope especially young people will hear this, Minot made the statement, you must not. Are you hearing this? Listen. You must not search inside yourselves for anything. That's lightning to the soul, isn't it? I mean, especially in these days when we're taught to do the opposite. Everything in culture militates against what Manoah is saying here. You must not search inside yourselves for anything, whether it is under the name of reason or intelligence, or feeling, or conscience, or some other lovely thing that dominates or judges or controls the Word of God. It is not a matter of controlling it, but of being controlled by it. The greatest of all God's servants are those who bow before that Word. Paul, David, Luther, and Calvin were jealous to submit themselves in the dust before that word, and if possible, they would have gone still lower. Oh, people of God, when we speak of these apostles here in this gospel, beginning to preach the kingdom, growing and maturing under the ministry of Christ, continuing to be used of Him to lay the foundation upon which we as a church have been built— 
Apostolicity means that we apply this rule to all who claim to know the truth, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. You know, I was reflecting just the other day as I remembered something that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. So I looked it up. He said this, the world's departure from the old foundations in theology, the world's departure from the old foundations in theology is in large measure the cause, I believe, of the moral wreckage that marks our modern life. If he said it then, what would he have said now? And that being the case, then young people get back to the old theology, get back to the apostles' teaching, get back to the Word of God, get back to that external standard, get back to trusting the Word, the Word, the Word, and developing your heart and your life and your decision-making and your analysis of culture or whatever it may be on the basis of the apostolic Word that has been entrusted to us to read and to love and learn and to live out of. Don't look within yourself. Look to the Word preached, proclaimed, the Word written, the Word that has been given to us. Look to that Word upon which the church is built. But now we see a third thing. And here we'll spend the remainder of our time. The authority of Christ demands a response. The authority of Christ demands that you and that I respond to it. We've seen Jesus' authority to cast out demons. That's great authority, isn't it? To call into existence a new people of God to establish His church, a people of truth with a mission in the world, with a Christ to proclaim. And now we see that this Christ demands a response. The Christ who cast out demons, who performed miracles, who preached the word, who called the apostles, who established his church, demands a response from us. Jesus claims to be absolutely authoritative. There's no maybe about it. And before this authority, we cannot be neutral. Now, many have pointed this out, that I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis because he's the one who said this that I think is most famous for saying it. There have been people before him that said this. Machen said it. Others have said it. But you'll know, many of you, this quote from C.S. Lewis. He said this. I would say a few things differently, but just get the main point. Lewis said this. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not 
come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now again, I would say a few things differently, but the point is, Mark is doing something very similar to this, and Lewis is just seeing what is found in the Gospels. Mark gives us in this text these very three responses that Lewis points out. Response number one, Jesus is mad. He's a lunatic. In verses 20 and following, 20 and 21, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, Jesus' family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. So at this point, the family of Jesus, probably focusing as we look at other gospel narratives upon his brothers, half-brothers because Jesus was virgin-born, they said he's, he's mad. His own brothers hearing what Jesus has been up to want to take him in hand. He is out of his mind, they have said. He's flipped out. He's forgiven sins. <laughs> Who can forgive sins? But God, right? Yeah, that's the point. He's forgiven sins. He speaks to great crowds. He eats with publicans and tax collectors. He's involved in controversy with the revered religious leaders of our society. And so they conclude he must be off his rocker. And yet later, his half-brother James, for example, will be one of the great leaders of the church. And why? Because according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, he is one who saw the risen Christ, who put his faith in Christ, who trusted him as Lord and Savior. So that's one response, a response that Jesus' family made. Probably other people were making that response as well, and people continue today to say, well, he's just out of his mind. But response two is Jesus is bad. And we find that in verses 22 through 30, when the scribes charge him with being in league with the devil. And they think that Beelzebul is inside Jesus and that he is literally indwelt by Satan. And Jesus responds to that viewpoint in these authoritative ways. He gathers them round. And he gives an authoritative rebuke and explanation in verses 23 through 27. He called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. So he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? A burglar is not helped by the homemaker with his theft. Rather, the thief binds the strong man and steals his goods. So Christ comes and binds the strong man. Christ's miracles prove the opposite of what they accuse. Beelzebul can do nothing to stop Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is triumphing. 
So he gives this authoritative rebuke and explanation. But then, talk about authority. Jesus gives this authoritative warning in verses 28 and 29. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin for they had said he has an unclean spirit. This is serious. This is authority. This is deep. This is rich. This is profound. This confronts the scribes. He meets them right between the eye with the truth. He warns the scribes there is only one sin that is unforgivable. And you'd better be careful. You're coming very close. And that is the sin against the Holy Spirit. What authority Jesus exercises. He warns them that by attributing to the agency of Satan, his casting out of demons and his miracles, they are really pushing the limits. Now, it's not just the utterance, undoubtedly, that does this, but it it represents a settled disposition of a heart that grows harder and harder and harder and harder against the gospel. And I cannot help but think of Romans, the first chapter, in which it says, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Their heart grows harder and harder. And it is an, Jesus says this, it is an everlasting sin. That is a sin that will never be forgiven, will never be pardoned. Now, of course, I need to make some pastoral remarks here. Um, The primary application of this teaching on the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is religious leaders, I think that's important to note, who would mislead others by attributing to Satan what really is the work of the Holy Spirit Second, no Christian can commit this sin. That's important for you to realize. If you're concerned to have dishonored the Lord in this way, then you haven't, because this represents a conscience that is so hard it wouldn't care. And then third, let any warning against any sin in Scripture have the effect of making your heart and mind more tender. And then let me bring the gospel to you, people of God, and remind you, that when you trusted in Jesus Christ, his all-sufficient atonement removed all of your sins. Again, Minot put it this way in one of his short sermons on his deathbed. He said, if only part of our sins were pardoned, if out of a thousand sins or a million sins, if our sins could be counted, only one were left that was not dealt with, then that pardon would be useless to us. But our pardon is complete. And so I'm not bringing this passage in order to disturb the believer, though we should take it very seriously. And is it possible that someone here is an unbeliever who has blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? I will leave that to the Holy Spirit to to deal with. It is not for me to say. It is possible. But this is the warning that he brought. 
And once again, do you not see the theme of authority that he can say, I can authoritatively say to you that what you are doing is going to lead you to hell and to an impossibility of repentance and faith. Response three, though. There's a third response in looking to the authoritative Christ. Jesus' family said he was mad. The scribes said that he was bad. And now the point of Mark's gospel is that Jesus is believed on as who he claims to be. And this is the only right, proper, legitimate conclusion. One has no right to conclude otherwise. Jesus is the self-authenticating Christ. He does not stand under any man's judgmental microscope. I'm not saying that when you examine Christ and you come up with the possibility that he's mad or that he's bad, that you have a right to come to that conclusion. You don't have that right, but it's simply a conclusion to which many will come. So his family arrives and sent someone to call for Jesus. Can you bring him out and so we can talk with him and take him in hand? His family wants to deal with this. He's surrounded by people who believingly and obediently hear him, people who receive him for who he is, verses 34 and 35. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What strange authority for him to say, here is my family. Those who do the will of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Those who do the will of my father, he's proclaiming himself to be of one essence with God. That's authority of the same essence with the father. And you are his nearest relatives who believe in him, who trust in him, who obey the Father, who live for the glory of God. And is there greater honor than to be identified with Jesus this way? For him to say, even through this text this morning, you are my children, you are my family, who have believed on me, and who live out of the fullness of what I have taught and what I have done, and what I have achieved, and what I have accomplished. Here's the mark of a disciple. Like these here, faithfully listening to his word and seeking the glory of God. What a contrast with, at this point, family who says he's mad, with the scribes who said he's bad, And now here is this group who listen and hang upon his words and love him and love the truth. And it all begins with submitting to the authority of Christ. So we have this strange, stormy figure in the New Testament who speaks on every page with absolute authority, healing the sick and casting out demons and claiming the right to establish the kingdom of God and even the power of eternal judgment who went to the cross and rose from the dead. The whole purpose of what we have seen this morning is to raise the question, who is this that speaks with such authority? Who is this? What manner of man is this? He claims to be God incarnate, one with the Father. 
what must my response, what must your response be to the authoritative Christ as seen in this passage of Holy Scripture this morning? Well, believer, let me first comment to you in conclusion. You believe Jesus' self-testimony. Let us remember that his authority continues to speak to us in the entirety of the Word of God. The world wants you on its side. Hearken to the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ and the authority of the Bible are not different. God inspired Scripture. Christ authorized Scripture. You do not have to flounder in this present evil age with the question, by what standard do I live? Do not be ashamed to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in his own submission to the Word of God, which is clear in his handling of the Old Testament Scriptures. When he answered the devil, for example, with, it is written, it is written, it is written, God's Word shows how He reigns in our midst. God's Word is how He reigns in our lives. Life without the Word of God is absurd. Let us get into this Word, love this Word. Let us immerse ourselves in this Word. Oh, how we need it. For otherwise, we will be susceptible to every wind of doctrine that is out there in the world. But now, to those who may have been worshiping with us for some time, coming to our worship services for some time, attending for some time, and yet you have not believed in Jesus, Jesus confronts you with his claims. All right, is he he mad? Is he bad? Or is he who he claims to be? And again, I'm not suggesting you have a right to conclude that he's other than he claims to be, but you inevitably will conclude one of these things, and I encourage you to get into the New Testament documents for yourselves, to turn your mind to the gospel and to the epistles. According to God's word, however, you must know that all of us, before the new birth, before being born again, all of us are irascible and malignant and dead in trespasses and sins and rebellious in our total depravity against God and against His truth. And so get into the Scriptures, and we will be praying for you. And we will be praying that the Lord will draw you out of self to Him. Because here in the Bible you are confronted with Christ. And before Christ, you cannot be neutral. The authoritative Christ is the unavoidable Christ. So you may attempt to avoid him now, but we all will meet him. Did you hear the reading from Philippians 2? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may attempt to avoid him now, but we all will meet him as he sits on the throne of judgment on the day of days, which he says, 
he will do in numbers of places in the Gospels. He says he will sit on that throne of judgment. So may the Lord enable you to confess with Thomas when he saw the risen Lord and he cried out, my Lord and my God. This is serious. This is a matter of eternal consequence. I do know, I do understand that the whole world militates against thinking about really serious things. The whole world really militates against any concept of an eternal consequence. This is serious. On the authority of Christ, let me say to you, the only way you can be saved from your sins is through this Christ revealed here in the Holy Scriptures. Again, may you cry out, my Lord and my God, and bow at least within your heart before him now in trust and in faith and submit to the authority of his word. For the day is coming in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen.